baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Good morning and welcome to Connecting Vets Daily for Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to two of the legislative directors from the Wounded Warrior Project. Derek Frontebarger, U.S. Army veteran, and Brian Dempsey, former lawyer at the VA, comes from a military family. Both have interesting perspectives and interesting jobs, and they're going to talk to us about the work that Wounded Warrior Project is doing on the legislative front, both in Capitol Hill and around the country, and why that's expanding for the organization. Of course, they're thought more of for their programs that they offer for our wounded warriors and their families. They're getting more and more involved in the business of legislation which certainly is a business, though uh, not in the way that you might think of it typically. We're also going to talk to John Burns. He's the project manager at the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. John is going to tell us about their new documentary, which is airing now on Amazon Prime. If you're an Amazon Prime customer, guess what? The Care They've Earned, the new documentary from Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. You can stream it now at no extra cost. And if you're not a Prime member, well, you'll find out about all of that coming up when we talk to John about this documentary, which focuses on issues that many veterans have had at the VA, specifically six veterans that have had a horrifying time of dealing with the VA and trying to get care for their issues. So those interviews are coming up later on in the show today. Right now, let's get to the military and veteran headlines from around the country. And we take you first to Wisconsin, a place that, uh, well, I'm watching the documentary Making a Murderer right now. I know I'm pretty far behind on that. I'm finishing up season one. Wisconsin's a place I've become more and more familiar with from watching that documentary and some other things. Uh, there's a veteran out there who has a trumpet or had a trumpet. The trumpet made it with him through deployments to Iraq, to Afghanistan. It was a gift from his parents, a beautiful silver trumpet. Of course, him being an Army reservist, he would occasionally play Reveille and things like that when asked for taps, you know, all the things that we use the trumpet or the bugle for in the military. Well, Matt Miller, who's from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, was in Milwaukee to do his drill weekend on Veterans Day weekend. Boy, isn't that kind of a kick to the groin? Hey, happy Veterans Day, and also we're going to need you to come in for your monthly drill on that weekend that's supposed to be this holiday weekend that's all about you. Uh, Sorry, you're going to have to work. To add insult to injury, he's down in Milwaukee getting ready for his, uh, finishing up his drill weekend, I believe, since this took place on Veterans Day on Sunday, comes out to check his truck, finds out it's been broken into, and a whole bunch of things have been stolen out of it, including his trumpet. That is the most important thing that was taken to him. His wife put out a post on Facebook, and if you happen to be in Wisconsin or if you're in the secondhand trumpet industry, which I assume exists because someone stole this gentleman's trumpet, it's a silver Getson B-flat trumpet with a brown hand wrap across the valves, and the serial number is P18562. 
think that's a good thing in this story. I wasn't aware that trumpets came with serial numbers. Kind of makes sense that they do now that I think about it. But I'm going to bet the people who stole that out of his truck also don't know that they come with serial numbers. So if they try to um, if they try to resell it, people might be able to check. And hopefully this will get uh, even more attention than it already has. But it's been shared out, the wife Chelsea Miller's post on Facebook, 3,000 times, 221 comments. Uh, hopefully even more people will get this out there. The story's being reported on by channel3000.com. Um, I don't know why they call themselves Channel 3000 because apparently they're just Channel 3, WISC-TV in Madison. Uh, just a, a nasty story, man. And, of course, the thieves, you would assume, probably didn't know that this was a member of the military that they were stealing from on Veterans Day. Uh, then again, if you're breaking into a truck to steal stuff, you probably don't care who it is that you're taking it from. You just care that you might get some money out of it, and you hope that you won't get caught. Uh, in this case, hopefully, Matt Miller's trumpet will be found and returned to him. Uh, they put up some pictures of him in uniform, playing the trumpet, doing what he does. Uh, appears to have been in a band with some other soldiers there. It's really, you know, part of uh, this guy's service has been this trumpet. It deployed with him. He used it over there. And now some scumbag breaks into his truck and takes it. So be on the lookout. Bolo, we've got a missing trumpet in Wisconsin, serial number P18562. So if you come across a silver gets in B-flat trumpet, and come on, who doesn't come across a silver gets in B-flat trumpet every once in a while, uh, check that serial number. And if it's the one, you go ahead and let Chelsea and Matt Miller know. The GI Bill. There's a continuing issue with the GI Bill, and that issue is related to, uh, of course, the expansion of the GI Bill to the forever GI Bill. There were some technological IT aspects to the payments for that going out properly, and surprise of all surprises, the Department of Veterans Affairs goofed that up. Months and months to prepare, still did not get the job done, and those uh, uh, benefits have not been reaching the people they're supposed to reach on time, if at all. Some of them not receiving the right amount of payment, some being overpaid, some being underpaid. That goes back to the change uh, relating to which zip code you actually are going to school under. Used to be you got the be paid for the zip code where your home was, your domicile, where you lived. But now they switched it to you get paid for the zip code of the school. So that can work to your benefit or your detriment. If you live in a town that has a higher BAA trait than the school, you're going to get less money than you would have before. If you live in a place where the BAA trait is lower than the school, then you will be getting more money. So it's kind of, you know, depends on where you live, whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing for you. We're not sure. What we are sure about is that the GI Bill blunder at the VA has had wide-ranging effects. At one point, up to all of the veterans that were going to school on the GI Bill this semester were being affected by this issue. Um, it's not good, and it's caused some problems. In fact, at University of Maryland University College, who we do a lot of work with, and they, of course, do a lot of great work with the veteran community, they said that one of their student veterans couldn't afford the gas money just to drive to class. Others have been late on paying rent. Some can't purchase their books for school. Think about that. You were promised when you joined up that if you served honorably, when you got out, you would be able to go to school on the GI Bill. Now, it only covers in-state tuition for whatever state you are a resident of. If you go to a private school within that state, uh, then you get 
the payment up to what the in-state tuition for a public school is. Of course, when you have an issue like this where the payments are not coming through, the living stipends are not coming through, apparently uh, the book stipend that you're supposed to get also not coming through, that can derail your life. This isn't just a minor little thing. This is a significant derailment of the lives of thousands, and of course at one point hundreds of thousands of veterans, and what are going to be the repercussions for that over at the VA? None that we can figure out so far. They're just like, ah, our bad. We didn't get it done. (laughs) Kind of like the VA ID card that they were supposed to get done uh, over a year ago now that uh, at last check, Joe Chanelli, executive director of AMVETS, who was one of the first ones to put in a request for that VA ID card, he still hasn't gotten his over a year later. So it's just another example here of the VA just having issues on that bureaucratic and IT side. It happens again and again and again. And frankly, I've come to expect it at this point. Not only that, I expect that the next semester, they're still going to have issues with this payment uh, uh, problem that they're having now. Because as we've talked to several people who've gotten involved with this, including Tony Lowe from the VFW, they don't believe that the VA has made the changes that they're supposed to make to get these students, these veterans going to school, the money that they're supposed to get when they're supposed to get it. So the repercussions at the VA... We don't know if there are going to be any repercussions for the people that were supposed to get this done, but we do know that there have been students that have pulled out of school. There have been students that have basically been told like, hey, you know, you're not you're not paying. You can't be here. There's a lot of issues going on. And according to a certifying officer over at UMUC, the VA is providing updates, but they are still waiting for the good news that all of VA's systems are good to go. But they're still waiting. That's the thing. Coming up on the end of the semester here, essentially. I mean, it ends in December. We're already in mid-November. Some places that started early, they end in late November, early December. I mean, this is this is this is not good, man. This is horrible for those students, and it's horrible for all of us who kind of predicted that this was going to happen. You make great legislative changes, and everybody thinks they're wonderful, and they are, but then you can't institute them properly. And these changes that are supposed to positively benefit everybody end up leading to a negative benefit for everybody at one point and then fewer people. But still, thousands of veterans being affected by this after the VA told us, oh, yeah, this will be all fixed within a week. Okay, maybe two weeks. Oh, maybe a month. Maybe two months. It's the kind of thing that happens, just kicking the can down the road. And when it comes to the education and the GI Bill benefits earned by those veterans— unacceptable for this to be happening Uh, again now we're what two plus months into the semester and still many students not receiving all of the payment that they're supposed to we've got an interesting story up on connectingvets.com about the five dumb things that smart vets do in their job search i'm not going to go into all the details because well you should go and check out that story and read it up but here are the five with a brief description. Well, we'll give you not five. We'll give you three out of the five because, you know, we got to leave some mystery out there, right? I don't want to spoil everything for you, but it's right on ConnectingVets.com. And here's one of the five. Relying on one resume. It's an interesting one. And that's what I did when I was looking for work. I had one resume. I didn't have two. What I did do is when I applied for different jobs, I would sometimes massage the resume to what I thought that organization might be looking for. And that's kind of what they're talking about here. But I only did that once or twice. Typically, I sent out the same resume. Using one type of resume for every employer is an outdated approach that will lengthen your transition. 
They say that there are a number of resume formats, including chronological, functional, and combination, which I imagine is a combination of chronological and functional, that will best be able to explain who you are and how you can help that employer. Makes sense. You know, there's some resumes you might be trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. You don't want that to happen. You want the resume to be custom made, tailor made for whatever that employer is. Obviously, if you're applying for two totally different types of jobs, if you're applying for an electrician job in one place and then you're applying for, uh, I don't know, like a a school teacher job in another place because you're qualified for that, it's not going to be the same resume that you have on there. You know, the local elementary school is not going to be looking for your ability to hardwire a, uh, a television set or something like that. So you do need to change it up, obviously, in those situations. But in general, you can look at each employer is what this is saying and figure out what are they looking for and how can I present what I bring to the table in that way that they're looking for. So that's a good one. Assuming employers know their skills. You've got to sell yourself, and you've got to translate your military experience. We've talked about this with a number of people. You know, if I go and tell someone I went to the defense information school, unless they were not only in the military but a public affairs or broadcasting specialist, they're not going to know what in the hell I'm talking about. They're just not. Most people in the military don't know what the defense information school is. How are we going to expect civilian employers to know what that is? And then expand that to whatever your school was. Because whatever your job was in the military, chances are, despite the fact that I served 13 years and worked with all branches of the service, chances are I've never heard of what your school is called. It's not like when you say, oh, I went to Yale. Everybody knows Yale. Not everybody knows military training facilities. Not everybody understands what those military training courses and the things that you have to do to get promoted actually entail. And one thing that's also not understood, I think, on on our side, on the veteran side, is how close some of the things you learn in the military mirror the civilian world and actually are marketable job skills. The key is figuring out how to explain those skills to those civilian employers. So that's what they're talking about here. Don't assume that they know your skills. Translate your military experience and verbalize them in a way that adds value to the workplace. Think about it like this. When you were asked by, I don't know, let's say your grandmother or your aunt or a child about what it is that you did in the military, and if it went into any detail, how did you explain it to them? Simplify. That's really the key. You've got to simplify your military experience. Don't use acronyms. Don't use uh, even well-known military schools. I mean, if you're an Army Ranger, you could say, yeah, I went through Ranger school. A lot of people don't even know what that is. Think about it. Navy SEALs, yeah, I went to BUDS. A lot of people know what Navy SEALs are. Not a lot of people know what BUDS is exactly, you know, basic underwater demolition skills yeah, or school. Right. See, I don't even know for sure what the S in BUDS stands for, but don't assume that employers know this. In fact, assume that they don't and simplify it. Don't dumb it down, but simplify it. Remember, try to think of how you would explain to someone who has no clue about the military, an elderly relative, a child, someone like that. Uh, not a not a two-year-old, but think of more like a, a seven or eight-year-old or something like that. And that's how you can kind of explain it to those employers. At least that's what I would suggest. Of course, you also need to take into account those skills that you pick up in the military that might not make it onto a resume uh, if you're thinking about your military experience. But if you were a civilian, you certainly would. 
Listen, if there's a civilian working at a company who is put in charge of uh, gathering snacks for the break room, and hello, Ruben, good morning, that person is going to have that on their resume, that they were the team leader of the snack department at, you know, Civilian Corp. That's going to be on their resume. So then why wouldn't you, as a veteran, put down when you were running the show in the military? When you were standing watch, if you were ever the senior person on watch, guess what? That's you leading a team. That's leadership experience. If you served honorably for four years, I guarantee you, you have leadership experience. And I'd be willing to bet, bet my own money, that that leadership experience surpasses anything that any person who went straight out of high school into college and did four years there had. It's just a fact. You were trusted in the military with things like firearms, multi-million dollar systems. Some of them get to drive Navy ships, aircraft carrier. Think about that. Think about the responsibility that each and every member of the military has had. You've got it too, but you've got to be able to put that through on your resume and explain it and not hold back. You know, they don't do that in the civilian world. If anything, they expand where they shouldn't on their resumes. Veterans have an issue with, uh, what's the opposite of expanding? Contracting what we've done. Trying to put it down into a hole that it's just like, well, you know, I did this. This was my job. Yeah, but what about all the rest of it? You know, when I was uh, doing shore patrol over in Guam, that's me leading a team. Think about it. It is. And it does translate. And it is important stuff to get on there. Here's the last one we're going to talk about before moving on to our next subject. Misunderstanding interviewing. According to this, the most qualified candidate many times doesn't get the job. It's the one who knows how to build rapport and connect their skills to the employer's needs. If you look at two resumes and one guy's a little bit better than the other one, you might think, well, that guy should get the job. But what if the guy who's maybe not as good uh, on the resume, maybe doesn't have all the technical skills, what if he sits down and just really knows how to sell himself, really knows how to talk to someone, isn't shy, isn't retiring, is someone that's out there and able to talk about what they've been able to do? Guess what? That resume benefit that the one person had just went out the door. So these are important things to think about. That's just three of the five that you can find on the story at ConnectingVets.com. Here's a crazy story coming from my uh, neck of the military in two ways. Both the Navy and the public affairs realm. Retired Navy Captain Jeffrey Breslaw, 52 years old, has pled guilty in the Fat Leonard scandal, apparently pocketing tens of thousands of dollars, not actually uh, stealing or taking kickbacks in the way that many of these things have come out in the Fat Leonard scandal, which, of course, is related to a defense contractor from uh, Malaysia who basically was bribing everybody in the Pacific Fleet of the Navy, it appears. Of course, not everybody. I exaggerate, but you know what I mean. Well, this public affairs officer, a captain in public affairs, which is pretty rare. There are only a couple of those in the Navy at any one time. So this was one of the top guys. Apparently... The money that he took from Fat Leonard was moonlighting as a spokesman for Fat Leonard and doing it while he was still on active duty. Think about that. This is an 06 in the United States Navy. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Navy ranks, captain in the Navy is a little higher than a captain in the other branches. This is an 06. Full bird, the equivalent of a colonel, had a full-time job as a public affairs officer, and then also decided on the side he was going to do some work for a defense contractor. He had actually gotten permission to do some outside work from the military, but did not disclose when he was going to do work for a defense contractor. 
That's a big no-no. And those $60,000 and other perks that he got from doing that job, guess what? He is now facing hard time and big fines. So when you look at what he could get, it looks like he could get up to four years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Sorry, maximum sentence of five years in prison and a $250,000 fine and up to three years of supervised release after that maximum of five years. There was another one who also was found guilty, retired Master Chief Ricarte David, sentenced for his role in the scandal after pleading guilty to taking bribes and other perks. So this this Fat Leonard thing, which kind of first gained traction, I think, because of the name, the fact that this defense contractor in Malaysia was a little chubby fellow who was known as Fat Leonard, that kind of got the headlines. But then as it's gone on, we've realized, holy God. There are a lot of high-ranking people in the military who make pretty good money. Got to tell you, captain in the military, in the Navy, captain in the Navy is making good money, living a pretty good life. The admirals involved in this, even more money, even better lives. You know, they've got personal drivers, assistants, all that stuff. Yet still, the greed overtook them and caused them to basically, I mean, they, they did some things like giving this guy ship movements. My goodness, can you imagine? That's something you could be put to death for during World War II, World War I, giving up movements of units. And during wartime, as, as this was taking place during wartime, as the global war on terrorism was taking place, of course, Afghanistan, Iraq, it is just upsetting is the best way to put it. Glenn Defense Marine Asia, GDMA, that was the firm that Fat Leonard ran, and of course, many, many high-ranking naval officers and enlisted personnel getting caught up in this, and the latest is this public affairs officer who decided to do some side work being a spokesman for a crooked um, defense contractor. Interesting choice of side jobs. Didn't work out too well for him. Again, maximum of five years that he's facing, as well as a $250,000 fine. You know, we just got done talking about the midterm elections and talking about uh, the role that veterans played in that. And quite a few veterans being elected to Congress. In fact, the largest incoming class of freshman veteran members of Congress in many years, over 20 years, and the most female veterans elected to the House at one time ever as well. Got three of them, former Navy pilot Mikey Sherrill, former Air Force Captain Chrissy Houlihan, and Navy veteran Elaine Luria, who actually beat out another vet, Representative Scott Taylor, who was a former Navy SEAL from Virginia. Then, of course, you also had Tammy Duckworth and Joni Ernst in the Senate up for re-election. They both made it in. Martha McSally uh, up against Kirsten Cinema in Arizona, which uh, last I saw, I believe it was going Cinema's uh, way, it looks like. But uh, last I also heard, it was still too close to call. We'll see exactly what happens there. You know, a big election season, a big one for the country, of course, dominated the news headlines for a long time. Well... People are already talking about the 2020 election and a veteran, a paratrooper. Yeah, his name is Richard Ojeda. He is a Democratic uh, lawmaker in West Virginia who actually ran for Congress in West Virginia, did not make it. Well, now he's announced he's going to run for president in 2020. Mr. Ojeda is a 24-year veteran of the U.S. Army, retiring. He was a paratrooper. Hey, Yusuf, how you doing, man? 
Good to see you. Uh, has announced that he's going to throw his hat into the ring. He actually announced it at the Korean War Veterans Memorial in D.C., filed his campaign committee paperwork. This is an interesting guy. He is a Democrat who has basically come out and publicly said his 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 track towards trying to get elected to Congress was saying that the Democratic Party is no longer aligned with uh, the values of America, but he still believes in the Democratic Party. So he's trying to bring the Democratic Party uh, back to where he believes that they should be. And of course, if he's elected president in 2020, listen, it's a long shot. Let's be honest. Probably more than a long shot. Probably an impossibility. But just to see that someone uh, in the veteran community is really going for it, that's not surprising to me at all. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Um, he also believes that politicians on the federal level should be required to donate everything they make above $1 million to charity. I'd be for that. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And hello to you too, sir. All right, you're listening to Connecting Vets Daily from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. And if Richard Ojeda actually gets elected to the presidency, we'll be keeping an eye on it here as we do with all the headlines. But... We've also got a whole bunch of fantastic interviews. In fact, we do a few every day, and today is no exception. We've got two of the legislative directors from Wounded Warrior Project, Derek Frontebarger and Brian Dempsey, coming up on the program. And we are also going to talk to John Burns. He's the project manager of the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. We're going to talk to him about their new documentary that is streaming on Amazon Prime, free for Amazon Prime members. It's called The Care They've Earned. Highlights six individuals who have had nightmares in dealing with the VA. Really fascinating stuff. And that talk with John Burns of CVAF is coming up right after this. Welcome back to Connecting Vets Daily from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is in the slogan. You'll notice I say Connecting Vets a lot there because it's what we do. Our team of veterans knows what it's like to have worn the uniform, and just as importantly, we know what it's like to take that uniform off for the last time. There are difficulties that one can face when leaving the military and heading back into civilian life, possibly for the first time since you were 17, 18 years old. We know about that, and we're trying to make that transition as easy as possible, and also getting you the information that you need not just to survive, but to thrive after leaving the military. Our next guest, he left the military, well, a couple of different times, actually, I think. We're going to talk to him briefly about that before getting into the new documentary, The Care They've Earned, from the Concerned Veterans of America Foundation. His name is John Burns, and John is the project manager of the CVA Foundation. John, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Eric. Thanks for having me on. It's absolutely our pleasure. Now, of course, as I mentioned, you had uh, some kind of interesting military trajectory in your career. You've been on the show once before, but to remind people just give us the cliffs notes version of you know where you're from when you joined and what you did while you were serving sure like i said i like to say i'm twice as stupid as most veterans i, I joined the marine corps uh back in the 90s during the gulf war um of course i didn't see any action in that uh, but i spent four years in the marine corps i uh, did a tour in somalia um you know did the usual marine corps things got out um spent uh spent almost five years as a civilian uh, but decided I wanted to go back in for the educational benefits and for the camaraderie and ended up joining the, uh, the New York Army National Guard um, in the summer of 2000. So just, just in time to, uh, to, to catch the September 11th attacks as a serving uh, guardsman. Well, there you go. And, of course, serving in the National Guard, serving in the Marine Corps, two different units with different mission, missions. Were they more similar or more different in your eyes, having served in both? So, obviously, there's a lot of differences. Um, you know, 
I was a, I was a combat engineer as a Marine, uh, but, but very infantry-centric organization, and everybody goes through you know, basic rifleman training. I was an infantryman in the Army. Um, so you know, that experience is very similar, right? You're living out in the field, you know, whether it's one week in a month or whether it's your whole life. You're living out in the field. You're doing the same kind of things. Um, the difference is in the Guard, that, that conversion every Sunday night, Monday morning, that, that month back to civilian mindset um, is something that you don't have to do as a Marine. Of course, John, you came to the CVA team, and now you are the project manager for the CVA Foundation. I think more people are uh, you know, familiar with Concerned Veterans for America, the organization, than they are with the rather new addition of the foundation. Tell us about the foundation, what it is, and what the goal of the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation is. Sure, absolutely. It's a newer project, right? We've, we've only kind of been in the process of standing it up for the last year or so. Um, and the focus on the foundation is to, is to do a better job um, educating veterans around the issues um, that really affect their lives, right? So how, how, as an organization, can we, using our expertise, our best, you know, our best capacities, give back to the veterans community? So, you know, we're really good at community building. We're really, really good at educating veterans and educating folks. So we leaned on those capacities. We came up with a program where we're teaching veterans um, better ways to be healthy, uh, better ways to be prosperous in, in the 21st century, to, to kind of build uh, a prosperous life for themselves as members of the middle class. Uh, and we're we're making them advocates and, and ambassadors for our our kind of thinking at the same time, right? That that prosperity is a kind of a mutual benefits basket, and we're teaching veterans how to be um, healthier and wealthier and wiser, um, and spread that into their community so that their service continues by being kind of examples for for best practices in the community. Of course, there are many things that all veterans have in common. There are things that are, of course, unique to each veteran. But for most of us, for at least a time in our lives, the VA becomes an important part of your post-military career. Whether you're talking about education benefits, whether you're talking about medical and health care, uh, that is the focus of this documentary that's come out through the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. The documentary is called The Care They've Earned. Tell us a little bit about where the idea for the documentary came from and how it came into development. Sure. So, you know, as you know, Concerned Veterans for America on the the, the CVA side, which has existed for six years or so now, um, has really for a long time been focused on legislation that reforms the VA. You know, when we came into existence back in 2012, there was a, a homeless problem that the VA was addressing. There was a benefits backlog. And in the meantime, we had the, the, the Phoenix scandal, which kind of highlighted for the whole country just how bad practices can be at these VA medical centers, the VA hospitals that most Americans are familiar with. So we, we Concerned Veterans for America, made it a project to really work on reforming that. And during that, that, that years-long kind of kind of effort to, to, to improve things there, you know, we realize that there's got to be a piece where um, we're showing the average American just, just what some veterans go through there. Um, and, you know, it, we learned a lot about filmmaking. We learned it's a long process that, you know, the film probably uh, we expected it to be, to be available sometime in 2017. Um, but it took till this year to get it done. Uh, but it's a really moving piece. It captures the, the stories of six different veterans as they kind of traverse, travail through VA healthcare. Um, you know, some of them, direct issues with the VA, others going through alternative ways of, of addressing their issues. Um, but it shows it shows the average American, the average citizen, um, some of the challenges that veterans face when they're trying to access health care, particularly through the VA system as it's existed recently. 
Of course, there are those who have horrifying experiences with the VA. We've had a number of guests here on the show. Uh, Brian Talley comes to mind, uh, who's, who's working to try and get legislation so that what happens to him it never happens again. Uh, there is also a large number of people who are happy with the care they get at the VA. How would you respond to someone who who watches this documentary and says, you know, those are six really distressing stories, but that doesn't tell the whole story. There's good care going on at the VA, too. Uh, what do you say to someone who comes to you with that kind of a, a question? Well, well, to people in my generation, you know, I'm a, and I'm a little older, I'd say, you know, there were people back in the 60s who bought the Corvair who were happy with it. It didn't make it a safe <laughs> car to drive, right? I mean, you know, there were people who were happy with Pintos back in the 70s. It didn't make it a great car. Um so clearly there are um, providers in the VA system who do a fantastic job. My, my last doc a, as a VA patient was a fantastic doctor. I was really happy with him. But as soon as I got past like him, when I got to schedulers, to, uh, to specialists, you know, outside treatment, outside of my primary care provider, it was always a hassle. It's been a hassle. Um, so, you know, just like there are people who maybe have a better experience than these six veterans – um, those people who have a good experience, they need to realize that that's not the the, the only experience in the right. VA. Um, and just because you get good service at a restaurant doesn't mean that I got good service at a restaurant, right? You got to look at that overall Yelp score. You got to look at the whole spread, right? How many one stars are there versus how many five star ratings are? And if you look at the kind of press that the VA has gotten, if you look at their own self rating, the grades that they provide inside, um, clearly there's you know a lot of work that they've got to go through. On the other hand, the foundation's not here to beat up on the, v- the VA system, right? We want to we wanna get Americans to see what veterans are going through and work with those veterans to make things better across the board, both at the VA and in alternative cares, things like Headstrong, which is a partner of ours that does fantastic treatment for PTSD and TBI out in the communities. We want to we wanna get the communities involved in, in the best practices, the best solutions for taking care of our veterans. We're speaking to John Burns, the project manager for Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. The new documentary out from the foundation is called The Care They've Earned. It's actually available on Amazon Prime, right? right. For so those who have so Amazon right now, Prime. So right now for, for you know, kind of the average sitting at home um, subscriber, viewer who wants to see it, it's exclusively available on Prime. So if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you could just, I'm not sure if it's available on the stick yet, but if you type into your computer, uh, you know, on Amazon in their search box, the care they've earned.com or CVAF, um, it'll come up. Do you, wh- what do you want the audience to gather from this documentary? Most documentaries uh, are either to tell a really interesting story or to enlighten people. This is a little bit of both from uh, what I've seen of it. I haven't yet watched the whole thing, but I made it through about halfway. <laughs> it, it seems that it's both an interesting story, a fascinating story, and something that can enlighten people. What do you hope the audience who watches the care they've earned walks away from it thinking? Well, I, th- I think what we want them to, to walk away from watching this documentary th- thinking is that we can do better for America's veterans. We still got a little bit of work to do. Um, and, th- and that we want them as a citizen, as a patriot, as an American to take a little bit of ownership of that and to think through um, how do we as a society get to the next level when we're providing for our veterans, that when we're taking care of our veterans, right? We need to look at, you know, these veterans, these six veterans who are, have had challenges, um, you know, some of these some of these stories are tragic. Um, some of them are sad. You know, some of them have great outcomes. But overall, we need to be doing a better job as Americans, connecting to that small segment of society that, that, that you and I belong to, um, connecting ourselves to those Americans, because we have unique experiences. And, you know, 
there's, it's not a new body of literature, right? We've drifted further and further away from the American mainstream since World War II and our ability to connect the veteran experience with the average American experience. So we want them to understand some of the challenges that veterans go through and to be ready, willing, and kind of, you know, in the game to take action and, and connect to veterans and do a better job at providing for them. With the different veterans that are featured in the documentary, were there any common threads between their stories that, that you guys found that you think are, uh, are interesting and worth taking a look at? Well, I think the common thread there is the frustration with the bureaucracy, the frustration that we haven't gotten to a point yet where, um, where you know, a, a, a veteran can get what they need when they need it um, from a bureaucracy that sometimes is too big to do um, to do the human side of what it's designed to do, right? So, you know, the bureaucracy is good at moving pieces around. It's good at spending money. Um, overall, you know, yeah, it takes care of millions of veterans in a healthcare system. But the, the theme there is clearly there's a human piece missing. There's a connection to the immediate need of the veteran um, to making them well physically and emotionally at the same time. In general, did it seem in this documentary and with the cases that you're dealing with in here that it was more an issue of poor care or poor um, access to that care that was the bigger problem, or is it a bit of both? I, I would say it's a bit of both, and again, it comes down to kind of that bureaucracy, right? Is this how how do you take a bureaucracy that's you know two hundred and seventy five, three hundred thousand strong, um, and and kind of shape it so that it's a good provider emotionally, physically, mentally of healthcare for folks who who clearly deserve the, the best health care that we can offer them, right? We're not just talking about your average American. We're talking about Americans who've sacrificed, who've, who've you know, foregone opportunity costs, who've undergone all kinds of experiences, you know, to the benefit of, of their fellow Americans. How do we find a way to connect them to the best care that we can get them? We're speaking with John Burns. He's the project manager of the Concern Veterans for America Foundation. Their new documentary, The Care They've Earned, is available for streaming on Amazon Prime for Amazon Prime members. It doesn't even cost them anything additional, I don't think, right? It, it does not. Member. It's it's available for free um, if you're a Prime member. Um, and again, right now, that's where we're showing it exclusively. Um, there have been some screenings around the country. Um, you know, this past weekend was was Veterans Day. Um, so we showed it in about nine different states. We showed it in Las Vegas. We showed it in the Phoenix area. In fact, one of the uh, one of the veterans featured in the movie hosted a screening in Chandler, Arizona, in the Phoenix area. Steve Cooper. Um, you know, we sh we're showing it in Virginia Beach this week. We're showing it here in uh, in Arlington, Virginia, this week. Um, and we're pushing the message out. But but we'd really like Amazon subscribers, folks who have that Amazon Prime account, um, if they can, to just go on. Um, uh, they can search for it on Amazon or they can go to uh, www.cvafoundation.org uh, or they can go to thecarethey'veearned.org and they'll find it on those sites too. The, the documentary, of course, follows six veterans, six different stories. Was there any one of them that stuck out to you as kind of indicative of what you think the biggest issues with the VA are? You know, the one that always just leaps out to me is Steve Cooper, because um, he's a guy, he's about my age. Um, he, you know, he, he faces prostate cancer. It went undiagnosed early on. You know, he almost died of it. Um, he's just a really good advocate for himself and for veterans. Um, and that's just, a, that's just something I could see happening to me. Uh, but I think that, you know, I mean, Shannon Hubbard's a female veteran who, who has, you know, serious traumatic ankle injury. Um, you know, there's, there are veterans in the film that, that have issues with PTSD, um, you know, there's a Marine who, 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 you know, who unfortunately doesn't make it in, in the documentary. So there's something in there for everyone. These are all experiences that I can connect to, though, because 
because you know we all know v- veterans our age who have health issues. We all know veterans who struggle with with PTSD and you know w- with the effects of trauma and trying to kind of reintegrate themselves into uh, into modern life. So again, Steve Cooper's my age. He's kind of the guy I kind of most empathize with. But but every every one of these stories is really important to share. What has the response been from people who've seen it? As you said, you showed it this weekend. Some veterans got to check it out. What have people been telling you that have seen the documentary about their thoughts on it? You know, a lot of comments. Um, we've screened it for a lot of veterans and military family members. Um, a lot of people say, you know, it's about time that we can share our experiences in a way that's coherent to other people. Um, heard things like, you know, every member of Cong- Congress should be forced to watch this. Um, every, every you know, every member or every employee at the VA should be forced to watch this. Um, you know, um, it's about time that some, somebody finally gets it. Um, across the board, veterans and military family members who watched it have been have been really moved by uh, the film and by the the events that they show. Um, kind of still still trying to get feedback, starting to kind of sort through feedback from the non-veteran community. Because, again, we focused initially on screening it for them. Um, you know, first couple of reviews on Amazon are, you know, overwhelmingly positive. Um, so, you know, we're hoping that, that folks take a look at this and really, really see uh, what we're trying to say, which is, you know, our veterans just deserve better right now. What is your hope that may come out of this? You know, if enough people at the VA see it or the people who control the VA, like members of Congress and, and others out there, what do you hope or think might come out of this documentary and the point that you're trying to make with it? Well, I think we want to elevate the conversation to the, po- to the point where folks are, aren't talking so much about politics, aren't so, talking so much about um, about what their particular interests are, and they're talking about how we can better serve veterans. That, that um, instead of, you know, immediately falling back on the defensive and saying, you know, my way or the highway, or this is the only way to fix this problem, that we're having, you know, grown up, engaged conversations, and we're all working to find the best solutions uh, for the problems facing veterans, where we're all working to find ways to get veterans the best care, because they've earned this care, right? It's the care they've earned, the best care in America, and we, that's what we want them to get. So we want more people talking about new ways, exploring ways to make that happen, because, you know, yeah, the VA is getting better, and, and yeah, the VA you know treats millions of veterans each year, many without problems, but there's room for improvement. And we want to get the conversation started about where we can improve and how we can best do that. You know, I, I've, I've had people, when they know that I've talked to Concerned Veterans for America or the foundation, say, well, you know, those guys, all they do is complain about the VA. The thing that I say to those people is, well, is the VA great? Is it perfect? Is it running the way it should for every veteran that goes there? The answer to that, of course, is no. And if that's not the case, then there needs to be improvement. That's kind of the goal of Concerned Veterans for America, isn't yeah. it? And the foundation. It's not to destroy the VA. It's to improve it. Yeah. And, and you know, for the foundation, like I said, we're working to educate um, veterans, you know, military family members and, and, and the citizenry of this country about these situations. Um, but I wouldn't say that we just complain about the VA. You know, we've worked, we've partnered with the VA on issues. Um, you know, we, we've supported the VA where it's appropriate. Um, you know, but we we just as a pair of organizations, we have a vision for a better, um, you know, a better VA and a better life for America's veterans. We just think that there's room for improvement. Um, so, you know, you can't improve things if you accept the status quo. That's absolutely true. I mean, you know, sometimes your harshest critic is the one who drives you to the greatest improvement. 
That's just the way yeah. that it goes. Um, like now, a drill sergeant. Well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> think about that. Think about you start off your military career with some of the meanest people you've ever met, and they're barely people. They're like monsters when you show up at Paris Island, Great Lakes, or wherever you But you're are. better for it. Yeah, there you go. Um, we talked about the response that you've gotten from some of the veterans who've seen it. Has there been any response from the VA as of yet, and do you expect to get any, either officially or unofficially, maybe through back channels or individuals? Frankly, I have not heard from any VA officials. Um, you know, <laughs> I know a few. Um, you know, I'm hoping that they take a look at it. Um, some of them, I think, would be very open to to what's shown there and, and would take it to heart. Um, you know, I mean, again, the VA officials that I that I know best are guys who and girls who really want to do the best for veterans, um, and I think that they'd be very moved by some of these stories. Um, you know, and and hopefully over the next couple of weeks, some of these folks will take a look at it. Um, and reach out to us and, 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 you know, ask for some ideas on what, where we think we can make improvements. We've been speaking with John Burns. He's the project manager for the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. This documentary, John, let me ask you on a personal level, why do you think it's important that as many people as possible see this documentary in your own words? Again, you know, there's been a disconnect um, over the last generation or so between military service and the general citizenry. And, um, you know, there's a lot of demographic reasons for that. A lot of things go into that. All volunteer army for the last 40 years or so. Um, you know, a, a very long conflict um, that that's fought with, you know, continuing um, redeployments of the same people over and over again in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, I mean, National Guard units, there are guys who expected to do, you know, one week in a month and two weeks a year and have four or five combat deployments in 20 years. Um, so that that's really unprecedented in our history. And at the same time, um, you know, as, as this all-volunteer army becomes a smaller and smaller segment of um, the American populace, there's been this big disconnect post-Vietnam, you know, post-Korea. Um, and we want people to reconnect, right? We want, we want the average American to find ways to connect with that veteran experience. That's what this past weekend's Veterans Day has always been about, right? Um, we're trying to kind of heal that gulf. So we'd really like, you know, add the average American to watch this, this film um, and get a sense of some of the unique problems that veterans face in their health care. And just be invested in the solution, right? Whatever the solution turns out to be, wherever the VA goes next, we want it to go up. We want it to improve. We want veterans health care, the entire situation for veterans health care in this country to improve. And if, if, if the average American who clearly loves his veteran, right? I mean, among the most popular subset of, you know, of Americans today, the military is still one of the most respected institutions in the country. If the average American can see some of the issues facing veterans as they access health care, then it's part of the solution. Of course, I've had conversations. I was in an event a few weeks ago and had a member of the uh, Maryland House of Delegates sitting at my table for this dinner. He had no idea that veterans get no dental care from the VA when they get out. I mean, the, the public just has, uh, I think, this kind of outside appreciation that there's a problem at the VA, but they don't really know exactly what that problem is or what the problems are. Do you think this documentary could provide that sort of insight and that sort of window into you know, some of the worst examples of, of the issues that some veterans are dealing with? Well, I, I think it provides insight into some of the worst examples. And I think it provides, again, that emotional connection, that ability for folks watching this to, to start to get real empathy, not just pay lip service to, but get real empathy for some of these problems and get invested in, in, in creating a better you know, veteran-centric healthcare system for veterans in this country. 
Well, we've been speaking with John Burns, again, Project Manager for Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. Their new documentary, The Care They've Earned, is currently streaming on Amazon. So if you're an Amazon Prime member, you're able to go on and watch it for free. It's uh, it's uh, a truly fascinating look into what some people are dealing with over at the VA. And until there are no veterans dealing with the kind of crap that these six are, uh, there's still going to be work to be done for improving the VA. And that's what Concerned Veterans for America focuses on in general, just making sure that veterans are getting the best care. John, if people are interested in finding out more about Concerned Veterans for America Foundation, where do they go to do so? Sure, of course, there's www.cvafoundation.org, which is our kind of general website. We're on Facebook, Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. We're on Twitter, Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. Um, For the documentary in particular, they can go just to The Care They've Earned, one word, thecarethaveearned.com. Um, they can watch the trailer there and find a link to Amazon. Um, you know, and if they're an Amazon Prime subscriber, again, it's it's free. It's available to watch. Uh, you can you know fling it to your stick. I'm not sure if you can find it on your Amazon Fire Stick yet, but you could definitely, if you get it on Amazon Prime, you could definitely get it up on your stick and and watch it on your big screen. Um, you know, and, and you know, we're really we'd really love to see folks go to thecarethaveearned.com uh, and take a look at the documentary. Well, John Burns, Project Manager for CVA Foundation, thank you so much for your time today. We thank, appreciate you coming by. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Uh, you know, hope you had a good Veterans Day and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. You're listening to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is the slogan. It's what we do. And, of course, where we do it, ConnectingVets.com, as well as social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. That's the best way to be kept abreast of everything that's going on here, breaking news, all that good stuff available there, including the Facebook Live segment of this show every morning at 7.15. And if you're not up at 7.15 to watch it or if you're doing other stuff, it gets uploaded. So you can actually check that out and uh, see what things look like here in the studio instead of just Hearing it through the audio, which I know it's fantastic, right? Waking up to my beautiful face. I'm sorry. (laughs) Taking a look at what's going on at ConnectingVets.com right now, or I should say on ConnectingVets.com right now. There is an article on scams targeting military personnel, and there are several of them out there that you need to be aware of. One is a scam that goes back... (laughs) about as far as the military does, and also is oftentimes legal. Yeah, think about that, a scam that's legal. Talking about military loans. These are loans that seem too good to be true. They're offered to members of the military or veterans with no credit checks and all ranks approved and all that stuff. Yeah, they also tend to have an upfront fee, and they're going to charge you money in addition to any interest that comes on that loan. Not a good idea to do that. You know, it just isn't. Charity scams. Fake charities using similar names of well-known veteran charities and organizations to try and fool donors. If you're hearing from the veterans of foreign wharfs, don't give them any money. (laughs) The Veterans of Foreign Wars is a good organization, but there are people out there using similar names or often using the same name of those organizations to try and fool donors and get their money. And they, it's not hard to create a website, create accounts, do all this stuff. That's a problem, man. Identity theft. That's another problem you've got going on out there. I was actually a victim of that when I was serving in the military because I made a dumb decision to try and watch football online while stationed overseas. Ended up putting in my credit card information, and wouldn't you know it, that didn't work out well for me. Yeah. 
All right. Still to come on Connecting Vets Daily, the Wednesday, November 14th edition, Wounded Warrior Project. We're going to talk to two of their legislative directors, Derek Frontebarger and Brian Dempsey, about Wounded Warrior Project's expansion and continuing ongoing expansion into the realm of legislation. Connecting Vets Daily, back right after this. Welcome back to Connecting Vets Daily from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's our mission. And you know why it's our mission? It's because each and every member of our team comes from the United States military. We know what it's like to wear the uniform. Just as importantly, we know what it's like to take it off that last time. We know it's not easy, and that's why each and every day we're working to provide you with the information, the benefits, the news that you need not just to survive, but to thrive after leaving the military. And we're doing it at ConnectingVets.com and, of course, on social media, at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. little click on your mouse or tap on your phone, you'll be that much closer to living your best veteran life. Our next guests, because we do have two of them, are from the Wounded Warrior Project. In fact, they are both legislative directors over at the Wounded Warrior Project. Please welcome to the show Derek Frontebarger and Brian Dempsey. Gentlemen, good morning. How are you today? Doing great, Eric. Thanks for having us. Good morning. How are you? We're going to be talking about, of course, legislation, as we've got two legislative directors from the Wounded Warrior Project with us. But first, let's talk just a little bit about each of you individually. Derek, you are a veteran yourself. So where are you from? When did you join? And what did you do in the Army? Yeah, thanks for having us here. Um, so I'm, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina originally. I uh, joined the Army in 05 uh, as an air defense artillery intel specialist. Uh, got out after a deployment to Afghanistan for a year and a half and have been working on veteran issues since then. All at the Wounded Warrior Project? Or when did you come over to the Wounded Warrior Project team? Uh, so the Wounded Warrior Project, I've been there for about a year. Um, I actually started um, my work in uh, legislative, uh, the or, sorry, the veteran realm uh, over at the White House on the Joining Forces team. Um, from there, I was actually the chief of staff at uh, Student Veterans of America for a while, which helps uh, veterans enter in higher education uh, also was the deputy director of legislative affairs at the American Legion, and then now the legislative director, one of them, over at Wounded Warrior Project. It's a pretty fascinating background already that you've had since leaving the Army, and of course the same is true of Brian Dempsey, although he's from a military family, not a veteran himself, but you also did some work over at the VA before coming to the Wounded Warrior Project. Tell us how you got involved in that line of work and what it was like working over at the VA. Yeah, of course, Eric. Um, so I was an attorney at the Board of Veterans Appeals for about three years after being a law student down in North Carolina. It was uh, an opportunity for me to really give back to the men and women who bravely served our country. I myself did not serve, but both of my grandparents did. Uh, one grandfather was uh, on the front lines of the Army in World War II. The other was a logistics army. Uh, I'm sorry, logistics uh, officer for the Navy down in Cuba during his military career. And while I didn't serve myself, it was a great opportunity to give back and take advantage of some of the skills that I have. That's awesome. And of course, always uh, great to have people working on behalf of veterans, especially those who maybe didn't serve but have a family connection. It's always wonderful to see, of course, the two of you working with an amazing organization in the Wounded Warrior Project, which I think most people think of as a service delivery type of organization. They have programs for veterans, but there's been an increase in advocacy and in the legislative side at Wounded Warrior Project over the years. Uh, tell us what you view the Wounded Warrior Project's role as in the legislative process when it comes to veterans. You know, that's a, that's a great question. So I started over at Wounded Warrior Project as they're expanding the legislative division. Uh, Brian had been there prior to myself, um, and, I, and we definitely saw 
that there was a need in the community to advocate on behalf of wounded warriors uh, on the Hill and, and to the federal government. Um, I've always said if you are a nonprofit and you're helping individuals out uh, individually, it really benefits those individuals to have someone advocating for their issues. Um, and with that, Wounded Warrior Project has decided to kind of expand their legislative divisions. I think we're up to about 15 people on our team now. So uh, and we'll continue on looking at those issues that are specific to the post 9-11 generation era um, and, and trying to assist them where we can. Brian, when we look at the last Congress and the work that the Wounded Warrior Project did, of course, some of it in concert with the other veteran service organizations, what are some of the legislative pieces from the last Congress that you guys were involved in that kind of stick out to you? Yeah, well, I think you can kind of break up that discussion into two into two groups, really. I think that the 115th Congress has been one of the more uh, active and, uh, you know, frankly, productive Congresses in terms of veterans legislation that we've seen in several years. You saw passage of the Forever GI Bill early in the session, which uh, had some great expansions to education benefits. But then later uh, in the session, you had the passage of the Mission Act, which uh, a, a great um, reform of VA's community care problems, but also expanded the caregiver program to other generations. That's something that was kind of surprising to, I think, a lot of veterans, that previous generations didn't have access to the same caregiver benefits that the current generation did. And it didn't make sense to a lot of people. Uh, it's important that the VSOs kind of join together on those uh, issues. What was the experience like as far as working in concert with other organizations who may not have the exact same direction and goal that Wounded Warrior Project does, but certainly have interest in a lot of the same legislation that you guys do? Yeah, and, you know, it's important to note that uh, when uh, Caregiver was a, a f originally um, established, Wounded Warrior Project was one of the primary organizations that pushed for that legislation. Uh, from there, we actually helped a lot of individuals get their, that benefit, and, and we saw it work really well for the post-9-11 generation era. Um, with that, we definitely saw that there was a need with the post-9-11 generation. Um, and so we were absolutely on board with helping where we could to try and expand that benefit to all generations, as it should have been from the get-go. One of those interesting legislative items from the last Congress that didn't get as much ink as it did in my head anyway was the expansion of commissary benefits to Purple Heart recipients and disabled veterans who are, uh, you know, people who Wounded Warrior Project is specifically aimed at assisting. How big do you think that was, not only for those veterans, but for a commissary system that's kind of had some financial difficulties over the past few years? Yeah, and as you said, uh, the, the, the commissary on posts have had issues, um, and there was the chance that they would potentially be closed down. Uh, so I think DOD looked at alternative ways to bring in income to the commissary. Um, with that, there was a piece of legislation. Jose Ramos, actually our third legislative director who works specifically on DOD issues, um, really championed hard for that on the Hill uh, to open commissary access to veterans, like you said, with Purple Heart and disabled veterans. And with the overall intent to try and bring in some revenue to that that system. Um, I don't think people see how big that is, but that means if you are a disabled veteran out in the community, uh, somewhere around 2020, you will have access to post, MWR access. If you're traveling, you can actually use the hotel on post to where you're traveling. Um, so it's really big. I mean, who doesn't like to go bowling on the weekends? Yeah. And my wife is waiting for the moment they open up the commissary to all veterans so that we'll be able to go and maybe get our uh, our groceries at a little bit lower rate than we do these days. We're speaking with Derek Frontebarger and Brian Dempsey. They are from the Wounded Warrior Project, both serving in the capacity as legislative directors. 
How important do you think the veteran voices on Capitol Hill were for this past Congress when we have people, uh, wounded warriors? I mean, we're talking about people like Brian Mast. Uh, there, there are quite a few that were on Capitol Hill. What role did they play in this veteran-focused legislation, and, and were they important in all of these great things that we saw move along? I, I mean, extremely important. Uh, Congressman Mast brings a unique perspective of his background his injuries, and also his uh, um, relationship with the VA. So when you're talking with a congressman who has firsthand experience and his staff or her staff, you don't have to say, you know, BAH is basic allowance for housing. Um, you can just go straight into the issue and, and right. they'll pick it up. They understand. So having those advocates on the Hill are, is critical in what we try and do every day. And of course, that's Senator Tammy Duckworth, whose name escaped me a moment ago. Brian, we've seen uh, a large number of veterans elected into Congress in this last election. In fact, the largest number in over 20 years of veterans coming in, along with kind of sadly an overall drop in the number of veterans that will be serving in Congress. So those two things uh, seem kind of incongruous for Congress. But what sort of role do you think those incoming veterans might be able to play in the legislative process, particularly as it relates to veterans issues? Right. Well, I think it's really important to have uh you know, members in Congress through all walks of life and all different kinds of backgrounds. I think the veterans coming to Congress will be particularly uh, friendly to the veteran service organizations who are so plugged into the community uh, with ideas for legislation and advocacy before VA and even before DOD as well. Um, but, you know, this is a, a community of people who, who know the issues, who if they don't know, um, you know, the issues personally, they've got friends who they served with who you know, have their ear, who can help them be really informed and persuasive advocates on veterans issues as they come up. Of course, we're coming off of, as you all pointed out, 2018 was a fantastic year, really a huge year for veterans legislation. What are your hopes for 2019? Do you think this year can equal or surpass what we saw in 2018 as far as what we get done for veterans on Capitol Hill? I mean, that's that's our hope. Absolutely. Uh, but I would say that 2018 was one of the most monumental years for veteran legislation. Uh, I, I mean, I know that some of the things that we're going to work on in, in this 116th Congress would be burn pit legislation, uh, a lot of oversight hearings that are going to happen to make sure that the, the legislation that we did actually put in place in uh, 115th is actually implemented correctly. Um, we're going to make sure that the caregiver expansion is done properly so that there aren't gaps uh, for those that are actually going to utilize it. Um, but, I mean, I would love to see another uh, 115th Congress victory again and again and again. Um, and we'll, we'll push for that. Absolutely. When we look back at the 115th Congress, you just brought up an interesting point. I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with how legislation works think, oh, well, this got through. The expansion of the GI Bill benefits, that got through. Everything's all good now. It's over and done with. Of course, we're seeing that's not the case. We had uh, how many hundreds of thousands of veterans who were not receiving their living stipend for the GI Bill because of the changes that came in, some technical issues. How important is it for you as legislative directors for organizations like the Wounded Warrior Project uh, to keep tabs on these things and make sure that they're not forgotten about just because they were passed and enacted into law. Yeah, I, I mean, I think like if you really divide it up into segments, I mean, that the, the effort, the community effort to rally behind big items like we discussed at the beginning of this show, like like the Forever GI Bill, like Mission Act, I mean, it takes the village of VSO community to get the bills like that passed. And like you said, once 
we've moved into the implementation phase, it's easy to take your eye off the ball and look for the next issue in Congress. But in fact, there's a lot of work to be done on the regulatory side that requires that consistent advocacy. And fortunately, you know, VA is very engaged with the VSO community, and they've been fortunate to bring us into the fold as they begin to write their regulations and explain uh, to us how we can better uh, engage our respective bases in the veteran community. But it does require uh, you know, continued focus and uh, you know, keeping VA accountable to driving this change forward. And to kind of follow up on that, something that we've always seen, uh, you know, members, if you look at it like the D.C. metro system, Members love to build that new line that goes further and further out so they can say, look at what we made that's new. Right. But nobody likes to do the, the maintenance, which is always a problem. So these oversight hearings and these, these um, you know, little informal conversations on checking up with VA on how something is actually working uh, are, are critical. Because if not, then you'll have a lot of new lines, but you won't have anybody actually maintaining what you did in the past. That's very true and important to keep an eye on, and that's what Derek Frontebarger and Brian Dempsey do as legislative directors at the Wounded Warrior Project. Brian, you, you of course, worked at the VA. You just talked about how engaged they are. They do push back on some things, and there is an issue that I don't know how involved, if at all, Wounded Warrior Project is with it, because it dates back to Vietnam, the Blue Water Navy Agent Orange issue, which the VA is pushing back on, essentially saying they can't afford it and that there's no way to prove that this was caused by Agent Orange. A lot of people seeing some parallels with the burn pit issue and worrying that if the Congress kicks the burn pit issue down the road long enough, we may end up in the same position. How important do you think it is that we get burn pit legislation passed sooner rather than later so that we don't fall into that same situation with the Agent Orange issue? Oh, I think it's critically important. And you know, speaking to my personal background as a an attorney at the Board of Veterans' Appeals, you saw veterans who waited years and years and years for injuries and illnesses that are related to their exposure to Agent Orange, which we're processing here in the 2000s, and that's decades too late. We don't want to see the same thing happen to uh, 9-11 generation veterans. And Derek can probably speak to some of the uh, sort of the nuances of Wounded Warrior Project's advocacy there. In fact, we just uh, recently entered into a partnership with Vietnam Veterans of America because of their uh, experience on this issue. And I'll let him talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And as Brian was saying, we have a partnership between uh, VVA, Vietnam's Veterans of America, and TAPS, uh, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Um, Bonnie Carroll over at TAPS, the CEO, came to us and she said, uh, I'm seeing a record number of new members coming into our organization. And, and just for those that aren't aware of TAPS, they're an organization that supports the families of fallen uh, service members. Um, and she's saying, and she was reporting to us that a lot of these families are, are saying that it's due to toxic exposure. Uh, so they asked us for help. We said, well, let's get VVA ourselves and TAPS all in the room and see what we can do in a legislative uh, fashion. Uh, with that, on the, for the 116th, we are trying to build a coalition of groups that are interested in this, that want to try and pass new legislation on the subject. Um, and, and we're, we're going to try and drive. Um, in the 115th Congress, there are over 12 pieces of legislation trying to address the issue. What that tells me is that the, the community isn't unified on one particular problem and everybody's just grasping at straw. So we look at the first step is get everybody in a room, see what's plausible uh, with the, the resources that are currently allocated to us uh, via Congress, uh, money and personnel and VA uh, ability, and then try and find actionable legislation to address these problems. 
There have been pieces of legislation introduced that would have an effect on this burn pit registry and all these things that are going on, including a recent one. We just talked about Brian Mast, he and Tulsi Gabbard, a bipartisan effort there. Those uh, a lot of people expected to get through this year and then that didn't happen. What do you think the holdup is on this issue? Is it that the legislation's not quite right yet or that there are financial considerations? Uh, what's the deal? <laughs> Honestly, I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, I, I think the community isn't fully on board with all the different pieces of legislation. Everybody's looking at, is this a DOD issue? Is this a VA issue? Um, how much is it going to cost? Do we just want to put people in the registry? Do we want to try and get them treatment? Do we want to get them treatment and benefits? So the goal right now is to say, bring everybody in a room that has uh, you know, a stake in, in what's going on and say, what, what is it that we're able to work with? Um, so as far as legislation, the 115th, I'd say a lot of it could be attributed to uh, either cost um, and, and, you know, what it is that you're trying to accomplish. If you want treatment and benefits, it's incredibly expensive. So we need to try and understand how do we focus those individuals that need treatment right now and how can we help them? And of course, uh, there are many interested parties in this. As you said, DOD and VA, who's paying for it? Who's responsible for it? You have different organizations out there, maybe pulling in the same direction, but slightly different, which goes and veers off. Uh, It can cause some issues. But is 2019, is the 116th Congress, do you think that's a place where we can finally get something done as far as burn pit legislation? Or is this something that it's going to be more of a long haul? What do you expect? I think uh, for the 116th Congress, we can get some momentum. I really do. Uh, We passed some major pieces of legislation so that, you know, as far in the 115th, as far as VA legislation goes, I think there's a void now to say, what is the next big thing? Um, I think if if VSOs really jump on board and they say, burn pits, burn pits and toxic exposure, that's what we need to focus on. There is appetite for that. we're speaking with Derek Frenneberger and Brian Dempsey, legislative directors from the Wounded Warrior Project, about the amazing legislative work that went on last year and the battles ahead for next year. 2000, well, I should say the battles this year and then the battles for the upcoming uh, year ahead in 2019. One of the issues I know you're focused on is improving the private and public partnerships for mental health and suicide prevention, a scourge of the veteran in uh, community, Brian, and something that uh, there are a lot of questions whether the VA is fully equipped to handle it on their own. It seems that there will probably be required some outside assistance for that, but what is Wounded Warrior Project looking to do in the coming year to, uh, to address that issue? Well, that's a great question. Like you said, one of the biggest issues in mental health is suicide prevention. Uh, you saw in the beginning of last year, the president signed an executive order to improve uh, transitioning service members' access to care, trying to remove any barriers to care in that first 12 months after service where they saw that there was a spike uh, in the, the rate of suicide among recently transitioning veterans. Um, VA was very engaged with the VSO community in putting together a joint action plan. And in fact, we have been collaborating them with them on a few issues since then. Uh, one, actually, interestingly, didn't even overlap with uh, mental health specifically, but they're trying to get this whole health initiative off the ground, which really takes a look, a 360-degree look at a veteran's health. It's not necessarily clinically driven, but how can veterans be better plugged into their community? How can they take a better job of, of accounting for their, their goals in which physical health and wellness is a part of it? So they're actually working with our physical health and wellness programming uh, now to get VA a bit more exposed to the work we're doing there. But uh, to the point you made very early in the program about how a Wounded Warrior Project is very much a program and service-oriented organization. 
One of our centerpiece programs in the mental health uh, part of what we do is our Warrior Care Network. It's a partnership between four leading academic medical centers across the country uh, located in Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. And what this program does is it provides two to three week intensive outpatient care for veterans who are suffering with moderate to severe PTSD. And the, the clinically significant improvements we're seeing in how uh, their mental health is measured are, are, are great. But there's also really tremendous improvement in resilience and well-being. But to the point about VA involvement and how we can be working better uh, with the administration on that is that VA actually has employees which are embedded at each of these academic medical centers to uh, improve that continuum for care for veterans. So we're, we've got people on the ground at these AMCs who are providing individual counseling, group briefings about what benefits they have through VA in their community, and then helping them schedule you know, appointments for once they're uh, graduated from the two- to three-week program. And VA actually just stepped to their commitment to the program alongside Wounded Warrior Project, where as our investment in that program is increasing over the next five years, so is VA's involvement. So they've now got full-time employees at each of those sites. Well, that is excellent to hear. And, and as you were talking about the people on the ground in that situation, how important is it for veterans in their local communities and the local chapters of organizations like the Wounded Warrior Project and, and others, how important is it for them to get involved politically and let their representatives know about how important they feel these veterans' issues are? Can that make a difference for the work that you do on Capitol Hill? 100%. It's that for me, that's one of the most important things that somebody can actually participate in, regardless of what side you fall on. If you're left, right in the middle, up, down, I, I mean, you have a right in this country to vote. You have a right to actually speak out politically uh, and to make sure that your voice is heard. Um, for me, I've always said it. The only time your your vote doesn't count is when you don't go to the poll and vote. It mm. literally is not counted then. Um, so I, I think as far as the veteran community, it's important to get out there. It's important to advocate on your issues. It's important to talk to your representatives. If you're having an issue, call your state representative, call your federal representative, um, write letters, let them know what's happening. Because at the other end, there is somebody there and they are actually tracking who's calling and what they're saying. So if you get a thousand veterans calling one office saying the same thing, that member will absolutely hear about it. If you get one veteran calling an office, writing a letter saying, this is an issue I'm having, it's going to be heard. So I, I think, you know, if you really care about these issues and you want people to know about it and you're on one side or you're on the other side, you need to let people know. If people are interested in finding out about the work that the Wounded Warrior Project is doing on Capitol Hill legislatively, how should they go about doing so? I think they've got a few ways, Eric. Uh, first, visit our webpage, www.woundedwarriorproject.org. There's some links there to the work that we're doing in government uh, and you know our advocacy in the community. There's also uh, opportunities to follow us on Twitter, on Facebook. And we also maintain an, uh, an email uh, account there for, for ideas from the community. It's advocacy at woundedwarriorproject.org, where you know, we don't profess to be the experts on every issue that uh, you know, a veteran's encountering in their life, but sometimes it's just that email that sparks an idea on our team, and you know, we take uh, all those emails and think about them. We've been speaking with Derek Fronnebarger and Brian Dempsey, legislative directors at the Wounded Warrior Project. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks thank for having you. us.
You've been listening to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. And we are here every Monday through Friday giving you what you need. We've got interviews with great folks like Derek and Brian from Wounded Warrior Project, as well as John Burns from the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation, who also joined us today. And, of course, your headlines that start off the show. All that good stuff headed your way each and every Monday through Friday right here. And, of course, right here is ConnectingVets.com. Check out the website as often as you can. And, of course, follow us on social media. Give us a little click on your mouse or tap on your phone. Click that little follow button. Click that ad friend. All those different things that you can do on social media. Those little movements will move you that much closer to living your best veteran life. And that's what our team here is working hard to try and do. Try and get you the information that you need to not just survive, but to thrive. And we're doing it each and every day because, well, we know what it's all about, man. Yeah, we are veterans. 13 years in the Navy for me. You got Phil Briggs served in the Navy. Matt Saintsing served in the Army. Kayla Jackson currently serving in the National Guard. Our executive producer is an Army spouse, so we've got all of those angles covered, as well as Libby Howe, of course, who is uh, a military brat who spent her first 18 years moving around with the family in the Air Force. All of that, we're putting it to good use, trying to get you that information, and we want you to get it. So follow us, again, at Connecting Vets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And that finishes this midweek edition of Connecting Vets Daily. On behalf of myself, Eric Dame, and the rest of the ConnectingVets.com team, have a great day, and we will see you again tomorrow morning. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time, baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.